Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. No matter the species of interest, whether it be deer, ducks, pheasants, sage grouse, or bobwhite quail, the question always comes up around hunting season. What are the numbers going to be like? Are there birds out there? On today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, I'm joined by three of the country's foremost bobwhite quail biologists to talk about counting bobwhite quail. Why is it important? How do they do it? And what does the quail population data teach them? And what do they use it for? So helping me break down quail population monitoring back uh, as a returning guest. I'm going to have each of them give a brief intro, but uh, Dr. Jess McGuire, Quail Forever's Working Lands for Bob White Quail Framework Coordinator. That's a mouthful, Jess. Uh, Dallas Ingram, <laughs> joining us on the podcast, State Quail Coordinator at Georgia DNR. And Dr. James Martin, Associate Professor of Wildlife at the University of Georgia. And you're the focus of uh, episode 150. Uh, so if listeners um, um, enjoy this episode, we'll have you go back and check out episode 150 as well. But uh, Jess, I'll, I'll start with you. Have you give a brief intro where you grew up and uh, what you do for the organization? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I appreciate it. I am Jess McGuire. I'm the Working Lands for Wildlife Bob White Coordinator, and um, I basically work on what is called the um, Pine and gra uh, Grass Savannas Framework through an effort by the USDA's NRCS, and it's an effort to um, really get habitat on the ground for Bob White through um, lift in capacity, so putting biologists out on the ground and working with our partners out there to do some really focused work with Bob White. Um, I've been in Georgia for about 10 years now. Um, after I got my PhD at UGA, I just, I didn't want to leave the state. It's uh, got a lot of great things here, high diversity. It's really a great place for a biologist to be. Um, so that's kind of what I've been up to. And, uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for, for rejoining the uh, the podcast. We'll jump to um, Dallas Ingram. And if I recall correctly, Dallas, you have the role that Jess once had at Georgia DNR. Is that accurate? That's correct. I stepped into this position. Well, Jess was kind of taking two roles. Um, we lost our original leader. And so uh, we kind of split that up, and I've taken on um, the state quail coordinator position for the last, I guess, five years now. Um, working here in the state, I've been part of the Bob White Quail Initiative for 10 years, uh, but I grew up in Georgia, and uh, so this has been home, and having been enjoyed working with quail, that's been a passion for 
family and for me since I've uh, started growing up on a farm in South Georgia. And so they've always been part of my life and uh, just kind of keeping that tradition going. What did, um, what did you grow on the farm where you grew up? Uh, it's changed over the years. Dad started growing with peanuts and corn. We had tobacco. Um, shifted into more hay and cotton over the years. So there's been a little bit of everything. Um, but always out when, with wildlife and uh, always had quail on the ground. So it's been important to us always. Were you a quail hunter growing up too? Not in the traditional sense. Um, some of the family had bird dogs. Uh, you always flushed birds along the fence lines. They you know, give you that heart attack as you walk up on them in the fields. And <laughs> uh, So we didn't really hunt a whole lot. They were just there. They were just, you know, you mm. heard them. Uh, it was just part of the life. And uh, you began to see them kind of disappear over time. It wasn't until... You know, I was a little bit older that we got dogs on our, of my own and started hunting. So, uh, and of course, that's a huge passion now. Yeah. It, what kind of bird dogs do you have? We have three GSPs. Jeez. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that. Go ahead, James. <laughs> I went on James. Here, here we go. I also um, have a GSP now, so he's outnumbered. We've been indoctrinated, Jess. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to well, get James in this on, at some point. He's going to have to get a GSP. I've, I've owned one. That's why I don't own one now. Uh, uh, yep. Uh, and what do you have now, James? I have red setters. Two red, red setters. setters. And, yeah. and, and if folks follow James, throw, throw your Instagram handle out, James. Oh, what is my Instagram? I think it's Martin Game Lab. It's, uh, yeah, Martin Game Lab. Yeah. Well, if you if you find James on Instagram, you know that uh, uh, he is a hardcore bird hunter. Uh, he's the associate professor of wildlife at University of Georgia. What fill in the blanks for us? Where you where you did you grow up, and uh, what do you do as the associate professor of wildlife at a university? Yeah, I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, I grew up working on a tobacco farm for uh, my grandfather and a family friend until I graduated college and uh, went to graduate school at the University of Georgia. Graduated there in 2010 and spent a little time in Mississippi State and then came back to Georgia. And that's where my wife is from. So that's what we call home now. Uh, hmm. But, you know, there's part of me that's still a, a North Carolinian. And uh, at the University of Georgia, I teach courses, but I do a lot of quail research and, and some research on other game birds as well. But mainly, Quail ecology or Bob White ecology is where I spend most of my time. And if if this were a video oriented podcast, they'd see Santa's reindeer behind you right now. Um, yep. What the heck's that about, James? <laughs> well, I was fortunate enough to get a uh, Fulbright fellowship to spend, uh, let's see, I think seven months in Norway, and mm. so I'm joining. From Trondheim, Norway, right now it's nine o'clock at night, and it's been snowing all day, and uh, it's been great. I've been studying ptarmigan, and hopefully, some of the things I learn here can be applied for quail management or quail science in the U.S. Well, that's exactly where I was. I was wondering if you're studying game birds there. So, are they a, 
like are they ptarmigan same species that live like in alaska and i guess the second part of that is what sort of things can you translate between ptarmigan and quail and bobway quail in the southeastern united states yeah, so the two species I'm working with here are rock ptarmigan and willow ptarmigan. Some people might call them willow yep. grouse. And so we do have those in the in North America. Uh, a couple things translate. One is they taste really well, <laughs> uh, just, just like a lot of our game birds. But no, they, uh, a lot of the techniques as far as counting them or uh, modeling their populations are the same. And I'm working here with a citizen science program where they use hunters to collect data hmm. and that data goes into a national database and, and that database is used to set harvest regulations every year for, for ptarmigan on uh, public land or, or or even private land where they sell hunting permits so it's uh there's a lot of similarities and and uh you know things that we can learn from the norwegians and hopefully they're learning something from me being here as well huh I just I want to ask a couple more questions about this because it's pretty fascinating. We yeah. we talk a lot about the North American model of wildlife, right? Yeah. Where it's in the public trust, um, and you know that's held up in par well in contrast to particularly England, where yeah. it's you know wildlife are owned by the landowners and the landowners hold the money. And what about in Scandinavia? Um, yeah. is it closer to, you know, England or is it closer to North America? It, it's close to North America. It's a hybrid model. So the, there's a, a lot of publicly owned or state owned land that is entirely managed by government entities. Typically the, the local municipalities own the land and they set the hunting regulations and they hmm. technically own the, the, the animals, even though they wouldn't necessarily say it that way. Uh, but, but they directly set the regulations by selling permits or selling the number of birds that can be harvested. Uh, so it, it's kind of a hybrid model, but it's quite unique and it's actually quite very, it's quite efficient as well because it's a lot of local decisions and, um, it's more of a direct system than, than we have in the U S. Very neat. Wait, I think down the road, we'll have to do a podcast specifically about what you've learned over there and how it parallels or contrasts with, um, you know, with the United States. But for this episode, you, you touched on it. You're kind of monitoring ptarmigan mm -hmm. populations. And that's, that's what this episode is about, um, monitoring bobwhite quail populations. And we're going to start with Dallas. Dallas, you know, fundamentally, as a quail biologist, why is knowing quail population data important to the job that you do? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One kind of James alluded to is developing regulations. Um, hmm. Even though here in the state, in our state of Georgia, we set regulations actually two years ahead of time. So we're looking more at those population trends, trying to figure out hmm. where they're going. Uh, do we need to increase, decrease, whatever? Um, to make sure that we have sustainable bobwhite populations. But also, um, it kind of helps us see is the management we're doing, is it working? Um, are we seeing successes? And if not, uh, allows us to figure out where those 
deficiencies are and hopefully try to address those deficiencies. Um, we can use those to compare properties. Say maybe this property looks very similar to another one and why is one of them not working when this one is? So we can track those populations over time and compare them become sites and then make those decisions based on each site because every site's a little bit different. So it gives us a couple of opportunities to look at management and then look at the population and the harvest related to that. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned that you set uh, regulations two years ahead of time. Um, I, my assumption, just not knowing, is that those are normally set, you know, maybe six months ahead of the season. What you do in Georgia two months ahead of time, is that unique well, as a state or is it more traditional that it's done two years in advance? I'm not sure with other states. Um, ours is set up because we have to run all any reg changes, any major changes through a board um, because mm. Georgia has a, a natural resources board. And they just, for some reason, that's been what's been adopted in the past is that we're going to make these changes in two years. Uh, a lot of mm -hmm. it's based on deer, which don't fluctuate a lot. So I think that was the original thoughts. Uh, but when you've got an animal okay. like quail that changes, that really needs to be a little bit different. So it's a challenge at times. I was just going to add that there are some states that do have a little bit more adaptive um, uh, pro procedures for adjusting it year to year based on their data. So, um, you know, other states are there. Georgia, you know, like she said, has to go through... It's a law change, essentially. So there's a, a longer process. Okay. Um, when you are looking at quail, I've heard quail referred to as in R, what, what's the right term? R selected or an R factor species. Uh, Jess, what, what does that mean and how is that connected to um, population trends for quail? So, I mean, a lot of people use that term to kind of just make it a little bit easier to break down the fact that uh, they're, they're going to need a high output to survive long term because lots of things like to eat them. So there are little nuggets across the landscape and, you know, for a few to survive, <laughs> you have to make lots of nuggets so some slip through and hopefully make it to the next season and uh, successfully add their own across the landscape so um in a nutshell that's kind of how we look we look at it um hoping that um you know hatches are successful enough that the numbers are high enough to get enough breeding pairs to uh, sustain a population and you know when habitats in great shape uh you know it's it's easy for them to do that and find cover and find good groceries on the ground but when, you know, we don't have habitat and, you know, or we're losing habitat, it makes it harder and harder. Um, other critters that have a different um, life history um, find more success, you know, longer lived species, you know, a hawk, uh, you know, other animals that have that long lifespan just do better hunting and seeking food and have diversity of choices versus a bob white. So that's kind of... Uh, and how I, how I look at it anyways. So, listeners, you heard it here first. Bob White <laughs> Quail are nature's chicken McNuggets. <laughs> Just, hopefully they're not that pink ooze that kind of comes out of the McDonald's, you know. Um, yeah. 
James, what kind of sauce do you like with your quail nuggets? <laughs> I'm a sweet and sour guy, I guess. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so Bob yeah. White quail, um, <laughs> what makes them maybe more challenging or different to count than than white-tailed deer who Dallas mentioned have a little bit more stable population or or you know a lot of our listeners will be familiar with August roadside counts for pheasants what what makes quail different to count well compared to a lot of large mammals you know you could count quail for a long time and never see one uh, and even even when they're abundant you may not see them uh, so you're, you're relying off of uh, auditory cues, which is typically going to be the Bob White call or the fall covey call. And uh, those calls are, are fairly reliable during certain times of the year. But, you know, if you're relying off pure, pure sight to, to, to count quail, it's going to be really difficult. The exception to that is in the southwest where they flush coveys via helicopter mm. to 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 visually see the coveys. And frankly, there's not en enough money in the world to get me one of those helicopters. So that's why I live in Georgia. Uh, so, you know, and, yeah, so we're mainly relying on calls to, to see or to, to detect quail because uh, we're not going to see them very often. And if you're seeing them very often, most likely that's not a good thing because they're, mm -hmm. that, that means hawks are seeing them as well. Mm -hmm. so, so the challenge is to time the survey so that they're calling regularly and uh fortunately that they have a very unique call that people can easily identify with, with some exceptions some people <laughs> some people people confuse the fall covey call with yeah. eastern toeys but uh hmm. in, in general they're you know compared to a lot of the warbler species or some of the sparrows they're easy to determine it's a quail and from there we can analyze the data are there other species that are counted kind of specifically using calls? Cause I, I mean, I know most of the wildlife, right, are, are visual. Yeah. But uh, um, are there others that are like quail that they count just from auditory? Yeah, uh, it's pretty common in bird counting or bird monitoring to rely on mm. auditory. Uh, most of the passerines, you know, your warblers, any, you know, the kind of birds that show up at your bird feeder. Other than at your bird feeder, it may be hard to count them out in nature. So sure. uh, most surveys rely on some auditory cue to detect that bird species. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so let's transition to the, how it's done um, yeah. in different times of the year. And it will start with Dallas in springtime. You know, I'm familiar with, you know, there's there's spring counting happening for quail. Um, how's that executed from a state agency perspective? It's a couple of different ways people can do it. Um, in the spring, again, like James has already mentioned, is you're listening for those calls. So mm -hmm. there's either roadside or you um, call them mail routes, um, postal routes that they run these certain routes and stop at certain intervals and listen for birds calling. Um, those counts are usually listening for pretty much all birds they're calling they're marking out everything that they're hearing quail get called up in those and you can kind of follow those trends over time across regions um, a lot of states and us we're using a point count 
So we have points that are established on certain areas, whether it's private lands or public lands, mainly public lands for us, uh, that we go back to every year and we stand at that point uh, for a few minutes in the morning and we listen to quail and a couple other species calling and we mark when we hear those birds call and then we move on to another point. So that's basically the way we do those, those spring counts. We call them breeding bird surveys because you're listening for those breeding birds that are calling. So you're really just listening to establish the presence of a bird right. to have potential to to breed for that uh, coming reproductive cycle, right? Yep, that, that gives us an idea. And for quail, it's um, we're looking at the males only calling during the breeding season. So we're listening to how many males are out there. It kind of gives us a trend over time. So you're usually comparing those from year to year. Do we have more males calling this year than last year? It kind of gives us an idea of how many males have come through the winter and are available for breeding. Okay. So for for folks not able to watch and nobody else can watch, we had two things happen here. Jess is completely gone from the podcast, and, and James is covered in darkness in Norway. But but your internet signal is super strong, and Dallas is still with us. So we're gonna we're gonna endeavor yeah. on. Yeah, I, I, I told you this might happen. Yeah, I, something about the. You know, they're really energy conscientious here in Norway. So if you don't move around, the whole building just goes dark. Uh, I hope you have a flashlight. Yeah. This, this happened a couple of weeks ago. I was in here and I didn't, really, didn't anticipate it happening. And it, and, uh, it freaked me out. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Is that polar bear supposed to be behind you right now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for a clown face. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Um, but I was going to add to what Dallas said. You know, the the calling male stuff is is really interesting. One thing we have known is that the the calling behavior of males fluctuates with the percentage of the hens that are currently incubating. So, throughout the breeding season, most of the males are going to call when the hens are on the nest, uh, and, and because that's when they're out trying to find a second lady or a third lady. And so um, that peak calling happens when incubation is at its peak. So that, you know, if someone wants to survey quail on their property or just kind of keep up with the phenology of things, if, if they kind of follow it all breeding season long and they kind of plot it out on some paper, they can, they can kind of know that whenever they heard the most males, it's probably when most of the hens were incubated. Yeah. And we do counts multiple times yeah, um, so that we can try and catch that peak in there because we want to hear as many males as we possibly can. Yeah. And I've often referred to it as the Mr. Mom advantage. It, bob whites are unique in the sense that, James, that, that males also incubate nests too. How does that change the dynamic for calling, or doesn't it? it, 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 it it does. So um, a lot of the later nests, um, well, uh, it, it fluctuates a lot from year to year. We can have some years that have very few percentage uh, of our nests that are incubated by males. And then some years it could be as high as 20%. And it Ooh. also, it is also varies from property to property. Uh, we Ooh. actually, we have a study that we're just starting on that, that 
Clay Sisson and Albany Quail Project and Garrett Roberts, the graduate students working on that. But uh, it, it does vary a lot from property to property, from year to year. Is Have you been able to determine what the variable is that dictates if a male is going to incubate a, a nest? Not really. It, it hmm. um, We're not really sure. There was some genetic work done 15, 20 years ago by a lab mate of mine, Brant, Brant Faircloth, and, and he looked at you know how many nests were actually sired by multiple males and how many nests were sired i mean excuse me how many eggs came from multiple hens in a nest and and it varies again from year to year and even with among the year a male can be very monogamous and then he can be very promiscuous within the same breeding season so mm. all, all of those strategies allow them to take advantage of resources that become available and really have those explosions of populations that Jess was talking about earlier. Okay. As you transition from spring into fall counting of quail, how, do, how does counting happen in the fall? How does it differ from springtime, James? Yeah, in the fall, again, the way we do it mostly in the southeast because we have a lot of tree cover and we can't fly helicopters and flush birds we're, we're lying mm -hmm. off hearing them uh doing the cubby call count uh cubby call whistle or call and it's, it's just a person going out there early in the morning you have to catch them when they're coming off the roost that's when they're going to reliably make that call and you hear them come off the roost and that can probably last about 45 minutes when they're doing that and the, and you marking those cubbies down, trying to keep them separated, you know, identifying unique cubbies. And you do that over the course of about a six week period of time is when you can get reliable surveys. And then now we're using acoustic recording devices to, to do that as well. But um, the human observer strategy has been around for a long time. It's really been uh mainstream for the last say 20 years but it's been around for much longer than that so i'm assuming that like when dallas is talking about springtime you're just counting for the existence of a covey to reproduce right. you can't identify like numbers of birds in a covey in the fall can you well we not from the call itself. So what we mm -hmm. what we try and do, and this is a perk of the job, is we try to uh, flush some coveys soon after we hear them, mm -hmm. and count the number of birds in a covey, and we flush them using real bird dogs like setters. The, the well, people with GSPs work better. You get better <laughs> counts with GSPs. <laughs> uh, well, well, let me re let me rephrase it. You flush them with the short, short hairs, and you point them with a setter. Um, and so, yeah, so if you do that enough, you typically can find that, okay, is there coveys are averaging 10, 10 birds this year or 12 or 14. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you kind of apply that average. So if you heard here on average, three coveys per point and they're averaging 12 birds per covey, you know, you don't have to go to Michigan to understand how many birds are out there. <laughs> 
<laughs> you are on your game today, James. I like it. <laughs> you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have sent notes for me to prepare. That just totally. <laughs> no, no take it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Yep. So uh, when you, so I know a lot of the, the research you're doing, utilizing students, um, are they, are they, do they have their own bird dogs that they're going out and doing these fall counts and do the state DNRs, they must be enlisting a lot of volunteers to run bird dogs to do these counts, right, James? Yeah, I'll let Dallas speak to uh, the volunteers for the state side, but, you know, a lot of my students don't come to graduate school with bird dogs, but typically they leave with them and hmm. uh, they start their career and they, and they soon after get bird dogs. And to me, that's one of the crowning achievements of my career is the, num <laughs> the number of students that have, got, have bird dogs now uh, that they didn't when they started graduate school. Uh, and, and because they do become a, a tool for the job, uh, and, and I encourage them to, to use that as a tax deduction. Um, <laughs> the the, the IRS you, doesn't listen. They, they you don't read listen that. Breed red setters and sell them for $5,000 a pup now, too, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that would be a conflict of, conflict of interest. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, a bird doll is important for, for counting cubbies. I mean, it, mm. and again, I'll let Dallas speak to this, but allowing people to run their dolls right after the surveys is an enticement to get people to volunteer. Yeah. Yeah, it takes a lot of volunteers to get this done. Um especially fall counts because we can do one mm -hmm. point per morning and some properties we have a minimum of 28 points on and so i need 28 people or we have to do a 28 different mornings so it, it's a lot of labor to do fall counts so we get mm -hmm. students from different universities you know it's good experience for them to come out um put that on their resume and like james said uh, if you've got a bird dog bring it and we get to flush some birds early season and um, so it, it's very important for us to have that, that connection to the, the, the colleges and to our Quell Forever chapters. We've had several that have come out and helped us stir up some interest. We've done count training for them. And, um, one of our groups brought out biscuits and all for us because it's an early, early morning. So, uh, yeah. it's fun, but it's, uh, yeah, you're not going to sleep in on those days. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, is there a kind of a test that these volunteers have to run through. I mean, no short hair would ever have to go through this test, but <laughs> to make sure that they're, to make sure they're steady. And I, cause you're counting, I'm assuming birds that are pretty young and you wouldn't want, uh, you know, these, these dogs to take out young ones. So how do you know that some of these volunteers have a dog that's not gonna, you know, creep or take out um, uh, a young cubby. We haven't had that issue. Um, they're just, mm. they're flushing them. We want them to flush and so that you can Ooh. count all those birds. So I don't have a problem if they're running through them. Um, this is why short hairs are really good for this. <laughs> uh, young puppies work really well. They can just run in there and get them all out. Uh, I'll just the, keep tossing James softballs. I mean, I'm just right. swinging. <laughs> I'm a I'm a good fastball hitter right down the middle. Yep. <laughs> the time lag 
difference between the end of the breeding season and the, when the counts happen is probably just enough where the birds are flying well enough that catching mm. squealers, as the old timers call them, mm-hmm. uh, is it, pretty unlikely. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it, and even quail chicks that are 21 days old or older than that can fly well enough to get away from most bird dogs. That's a good um, point. So, so is, are these calls happening August, September, October? How late um, do the do the fall counts happen, um, Dallas? Here in Georgia, we start about mid October and run okay. through mid November. So we want to give time for the coveys to really get together and get solidified, and um, so we give them. Some of the places will go out and actually start listening in the mornings and they start hearing birds. And then that, once they start hearing a certain number of birds, then they'll start counts. But we just kind of start about the 15th of October each year and, and run through the 15th of November. It's interesting because so when I started with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever 20 years ago, I started writing the hunting forecasts. And when you look at hunting forecasts you dial back to what the spring was like what was reproduction like because that's really the spring weather and the habitat conditions dictate and winter carryover dictate what the bird numbers are going to be and it's always when you talk to a biologist for a state agency minnesota dnr and pheasant country generally speaking you can say well the peak of the pheasant hatch is june 10th North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Iowa, Nebraska, June 10th, June 10th, June 10th. When you talk to a biologist about quail, it's like, well, it could be April to August. It's like, (laughs) that's a big window of reproduction. And and the other thing that's different, because a lot of our listeners are thinking of listening to this and paralleling it to pheasants, and you can't. There's a lot of differences one of it is the peak of the hatch, you know, that early June for pheasants. It's completely different for quail, April to August. The other thing that's completely different, like pheasant hens, once a singular egg hatches, they are done. They don't have multiple, they don't lay multiple uh, clutches in a season unless, say, they've dropped three eggs and then a skunk comes in and eats them. Then they'll lay another clutch of eggs, which averages around 11. And each subsequent renesting attempt, the first one is 11, and then a skunk gets those, it'll go down seven eggs. And then it'll go down three eggs. Each one, they start losing energy. With quail, as we've already sort of alluded to, because of the quote-unquote Mr. Mom advantage, right, the opportunity for a male to help with the incubation. I mean, there's studies, Dallas, showing one hen can produce upwards, up to three clutches in any spring season, right? Yeah, and that's pretty common around here is for a hen to to lay three nests. Um, Again, Jess already talked about them being an R species, so they're trying to get as many chicks on the ground as they possibly can. And, you know, we'll see people report um, what we call the little bumblebees, those first little hatched chicks coming off in the first part of October. So Ooh. they're just flying, some of them, um, when we're doing counts. And sometimes it's those late hatches that are very important to our population, depending Ooh. on 
whether we've had drought during the summer or what's going on. So uh, those multiple hatches really help our population some years. So we've talked spring counting, fall counting. The third counting mechanism, Dallas, is those hunter harvest surveys. How are those executed? And I've always wondered, are those really accurate? Like, do people really participate? And how do you extrapolate the participation to any measure of accuracy? So how do you do that? And, and, you know, is that a pretty accurate tool for you? There's two different hunter surveys that we use. Um, There's the the phone calls where they take the list of hunters that have, you know, licenses, call a random number of those. They call a certain number and hopefully a good number of them will answer, but they have a set amount that they want to get questions, so they'll keep calling until they get that, that set number. Um, then ask them questions, you know, if, if they hunt small game, then they'll ask them where and all those sorts of things. So that gives us an idea of how many hunters we have out there mm. um, and then whether or not they're hunting pin birds versus wild birds, um, private land versus public lands. That's kind of, that survey, What that's what that gives us. Um, what we've started doing here in Georgia and several other states um, have been doing or have started doing is we have cards that get information from the hunters at the property. So they're there at the kiosk. They pick one up when they come in, give me their information, drop it in a box. When they're done, they take the second half of that card and tell me how many birds they flushed, um, how many birds did they kill, were they male, female, and breaking down that information, how many hours did they um, hunt, how many dogs did they use, uh, did they use setters, and we could have to duck that off, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but that information is actually a little more important for us. Um, that allows me to track actual harvest over time and see if some properties may be getting a little more harvest than others um do we need to kind of adjust the the availability um or are we not getting any interest in that area maybe i can open it up a little bit more so uh, those Mm. cards are very important um some people are really good at giving me accurate information on those and some are not so good i think people were afraid to give me the correct number that they're doing sometimes because they don't want, don't want us to know, hey, I'm finding a whole <laughs> bunch of birds. Um, but that's not something we share. Yeah, is that, <laughs> not the miss. I'm not going to tell me how many they actually wounded birds. Hmm. Um, but they're really hurting themselves by not giving us that great information. So um, it's that's very important for for our hunters to understand. Just, you're, you're not helping yourself by saying, oh, no, we're not harvesting anything on this property. Mm-hmm. Um Yep, that's so, it's very important. Forgive me for constantly paralleling pheasants and quail, but it, as you talk about this, it occurs to me one thing I've always hungered for in southern quail states is to have a quail stamp. Um, and the reason being, so in many states up, like Minnesota has a pheasant stamp, and South Dakota people have to buy a pheasant specific license and not only does that solve one of the things you talked about like trying to identify who's actually hunting quail it generates revenue that goes specifically into the management of that species um has there been talk of that across 
southern states like adding a quail specific stamp to get a better handle on who's actually um, interested in targeting quail in the fall rather than just buying a generic hunting license is is that something that's come up um dallas it's we have hunters actually suggest that to us regularly um and it comes up we've discussed it different times uh there's been some states i think have looked at some different things what we use is to generate revenue as a license plate um, that brings a lot of money into uh, to georgia and to our private lands our bob white quail initiative program um, so there originally there was some concern that putting a stamp on would impact the tag revenue um, there's just been a lot of things that we haven't been able to get the momentum from either the legislature or mm-hmm. you know others involved but definitely would help keep up how many people yeah. are actually hunting quail even if it was a dollar right. it would solve you know it doesn't have to be a tremendous um burden for the hunter right. but a one dollar trigger for lack of a better term that helped solve who's hunting quail so you could deliver the survey to them so you could better manage habitat specific to quail would be really I think valuable for states across the southeast to consider. All right, we're gonna we're gonna change the conversation a little bit. To, um, changes that are occurring today in quail monitoring. Before I go there, I want to give a shout out to Onyx, our national sponsor and sponsor of On the Wing podcast. Uh, Onyx is trusted by millions of hunters across the United States, and you can test drive. Onyx risk-free by going to onyxhunt.com and uh, downloading the app. Um, if you use the code pheasants or quail when you uh, sign up to become a member of Onyx, you'll get 20% off your Onyx membership for the next year. And you'll also be glad to know that Onyx makes a donation to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission every single time the code quail or the code pheasants is used at onyxhunt.com. That means better habitat, more wild birds, and more public lands for all of us to hunt. So thanks to Onyx for being a tremendous partner of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission all right dallas the the impetus for this podcast episode was around all the changes that are happening in quail monitoring the last couple of years what are those changes you know we talked about historic spring fall hunter harvest survey um and and james brought us to the edge of some of those things with with helicopters um, and, and recording devices, but tell us about what's going on in 2022 to count quail. Well, there's a, a lot more interest in counting quail across the states, across the whole range, and a lot of states have upped their game a little bit. Uh, I know here in Georgia, we have been increasing the number of properties that we've been counting on, uh, which requires more volunteers, so a lot more volunteer engagement. Uh, so more intense monitoring so that we can utilize that data and make those changes. And then, as Jane's already mentioned, uh, the addition of those um, ARUs, those automated recording 
uh, units and James can talk to those a lot more than I can but I think that's going to be um, a big help to us moving forward because that's going to allow us to get information on properties where we don't have that um, volunteer or staff enough people out there to, to lecture to listen each morning because as I mentioned mm. that's very labor intensive. James when I've watched TV shows from the 90s so, are you nervous where I'm going to take this? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to really hear about your friends watching Habit. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'll be there for you. Anyway. Um, when, you know, there's always, like, the, the somebody's um, a detective trying to break down the voicemail left on the answering machine, right? They, yep. they could listen to the speech pattern. And it, mm -hmm. so where, where my mind's going, like with the auditory recording devices, are we at a point where you can put one of these out and they can, that, that device can absolutely tell you the uniqueness of each individual quail. So you go from using a, a setter that just busts a covey. <laughs> I had to do it. Uh, and, and counting the number of birds to where you could put one of these devices out there and say, oh yeah, there's, you know, nine birds in that covey and there's seven in that covey and there's five in that covey. Is that, are we there yet? We're, we're not there yet that far. And I don't know if we'll, I don't know if we'll get quite that far. Uh, hmm. Where we are is the, Acoustic recording device is there's nothing special about it per se. It, it's nothing more than a glorified microphone hmm. uh, that can handle some bad weather. It's the machine learning algorithms that then take those sound files to identify is it a quail, is it a towhee, is it an airplane, is it a cow? Uh, which all of those things have caused trouble in, in the past, uh, believe it or not. So we, we, we have a model that's 92 to 98% accurate of discerning mm -hmm. between a fall covey call versus an eastern towhee or, or other species. Uh, I don't think we'll get to the point where we can discern particular coveys. And frankly, we don't need to go that far. We, we can get mm. good estimates without having to have that information. Okay. And, and what role are your students playing in it? Go ahead, Jess. No, I was just, I was just going to say, you know, the technology, what's nice about it is that um, our biologists are so spread thin with technical assistance and, you know, writing plans for landowners that this allows them to follow up and provide important information, not just to the study that we're working on, but also to the landowners. So it helps us get landowner buy-in um, mm. It helps us mm. to see change over time with not as much labor and man hours going into monitoring as mm -hmm. Dallas was talking about. You know, our chapters are great. Um, you know, they they often will provide their time, but, you know, that's that's a few mornings here and there. Same with our biologists. So um, the technology is phenomenal. I was skeptical at first. And then you start seeing how accurate it is and not just for Bob White. So what's fun about it? is that, you know, you go out to that farm and they'll just be like, oh, we haven't heard Bob White for years. You know, we're not going to detect them and they don't want to put these out. But then we can tell them, well, wait a minute, we're going to be, um, we're able to pick up some other species that should still be around. 
and, you know, see that change over time in hopes that we are going to detect Bob White. So it's uh, it's pretty fun technology. And James's crew has been phenomenal with getting everybody up to speed on it. So that, Jess, that does uh, beg a question that I had in my mind. Like, so there's a lot of different la- um, audiences here that have an interest in, in quail populations. I, I can think of reasons, like you mentioned, landowners would be interested. Quail hunters would be interested. State agencies would be interested in helping identify their regulations. Um, NRCS, interested in producing results based on you know, what the, the different practices that are being put in place to pay landowners for different habitat projects. Is there... Has there been one singular impetus, driving force, a catalyst that has swept like a wave, pushing for this desire in new efforts to count quail? Or is it the culmination of all these different audiences? So I I think it's the demands of a lot of audiences, as Dallas spoke to. You know, um, our our landowners are asking, well, am I making a difference? NRCS and other funding sources, they want to see that their money is being put to good use and that we're actually going to be detecting change over time. And we don't have, um, you know, enough people out there all the time. It's really hard to detect that. And, you know, there's also a demand from state agencies just to get baselines. Um, We're monitoring public lands, private lands. And, Mm. you know, it's the, the, Mm. the demand is great. We're really happy it's there, but we had to come up with a solution to be able to spread all this out. And um, I think this is going to fill that gap. And what we're launching into, thanks to, you know, the interest larger of the Working Lands for Wildlife, um, you know, the outcomes assessment is that I think this is probably one of the largest efforts across the range of the Bob White to really go out and get some good data. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of places, it's baseline. You mm-hmm. know, we don't know. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's important mm-hmm. with what we do. And you keep hearing over and over from James in Dallas, this long-term data set, you know, we need to see trends. And if we haven't been collecting the data, we can't detect those trends. So there are places we have no idea what's going on. And this will this will really up our game in terms of informing um, the decision makers, uh, you know, and keep the funding flowing as well, you know, show that yeah. we are impacting. Yeah. <clears throat> it, it's certainly burdensome on the front end to create the the data measurement for you know quail populations uh duck production pheasant production soil health water quality but if you think about this i think as an american society we have taken for granted conservation programs in the farm bill for the last 40 years and this you know climate resiliency, you know, you just name all the outputs of these practices and, you know, that that come as a result of farm bill programs like CRP, like Working Lands for Wildlife. And I think it's going to be staggering when you start to see some of this data, at least fingers crossed, I'm hopeful. What what do you think, Jess? Do you think we underappreciate how much farm programs have done for wildlife and natural resource benefits? Well, I'm, I'm probably a little biased, but I, I do think so. And I think it's a underutilized resource by a lot of people and in the science conservation community, you know, it's our 
number one source for financial assistance um, mm -hmm. to our landowners. And, you know, the more people we have on the ground assisting landowners and NRCS field staff to, you know, accurately plan and, you know, make sure that we're putting good practices on the ground that's not damaging, you know, it's science-based, which is so important that we're working with our, you know, university and research partners on this. And, you know, we're, we're getting solid data, we're adaptive. So we're learning from mistakes. Um, we're able to track things, uh, you know, it's, it's really important. And, uh, you know, the farm bill is much more than, you know, paying a landowner for what they're working on. You know, there's also this outcomes side of things mm -hmm. that we're working on as well. And that is also adaptive and showing that we are accurately implementing the programs is what keeps um, interest of those decision makers, right. you know, make sure that we can prove that, you know, the money is going to, you know, soil health, water quality, and that one of the great things about working in wildlife that I think so few people give it credit for is that we are mitigating some of those negative things across the landscape by implementing wildlife practices. Sure, we, mm -hmm. we love the birds. You know, you're with a passionate group right now that uh, we want to see birds on the landscape. But more importantly, when you get down to it, it's how we're manipulating the landscape with these programs to try to restore habitat. You know, we're getting those system benefits back. We're mitigating wildfires. You know, we're, we're helping um, reroute water to where it should be. So we're reducing flood impacts, you know, and, and these um, catastrophic events. So I think, you know, you gave me the soapbox, so here I go, right? <laughs> um, I think, you know, we, we need to give more credit. We need to give more credit than just, you know, we're chasing our dogs around and, you know, it's a hobby for us. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're impacting the landscape and it's for the health of people. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. so it's it's a much broader thing that we're doing here that I think that message really needs to get out there. How important um, what we do is in our hunters, how important, you know, they are in the process. Mm -hmm. You know, Farm Bill just really helps pull all that together uh, and get us all working on the same on the same page, I think. And, and James just just mentioned. <laughs> Just mentioned the the role the university plays in the science component of this. So, uh, connect that dot for us. What uh, what do you do at the University of Georgia, and how do your students participate in um, monitoring quail and in sort of taking this to the next level of counting populations? Yeah, I would say you know the science part tells us how we do things. Uh, the people tell us why we're doing things mm. and the how uh, you know the, i'm able to develop things like using acoustic recording devices for quail because there were 10 people that came before me that figured out that you could count quail in the fall you know there and that goes back to there was a paper by a gentleman named davis i, I never met him uh, but I read his paper and I learned from it. And then there was Steve Damaso's thesis in 1992. And then there was Shane Willendorf's thesis in 2000. And then there was Ted Sellers. And then there was Nathan Wilhite, you know. So there was 
where we are today is because there were people before me that created science and I'm just adding to it. And my grad students play a huge role in that and postdocs and other staff members. They're the ones that do all the hard work. And, uh, you know, I'm the, the person that gets to sit back and drink the coffee and smoke my uh, pipe. And, uh, yeah, they're super critical to the not just the physical labor, but they're the energy because they're a lot younger typically. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, they, they can uh, handle a lot more late nights and, and early mornings. And, mm. and they just, they're inquisitive. And we're training them that once they leave graduate school, they go on to be state biologists or work for NGOs like Quail Forever or Pheasants Forever. So they're, they're super important. They don't get enough credit frankly, but, um, you know, my job is to make sure that they're producing good science and we're answering the questions that the agencies and the NGOs are interested in, in knowing about. So Dallas, as this evolves and you're armed with better data, better idea of, you know, what's on the landscape in terms of populations for, of quail, what's that allow you to do differently in your role as a Georgia DNR quail coordinator. That information helps us to direct our resources a little bit better, um, to adapt our management to where it's more beneficial for whatever species it is that we're managing. Um, as a state agency, you know we're limited to how many people, what the resources we, we have. So we want to direct those into places we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck. And so some of this management and monitoring that we see over time, you know, we see maybe this is working well. We can take that and apply it to another area, um, hopefully to get the same results. And if it's not, figuring, like I said earlier, we figure out why. So that being a little more adaptive in the management, we've gotten a lot better at adapting management, not just have a single prescription for a property um, that like it once was a time you just didn't it was the way we did it we didn't change it uh, so now that's changed a lot more more adaptive as we go through and i'm hoping to move to more of a, an adaptive harvest so we kind of talked about it at the beginning how we're setting two years in advance we're now working on some things so where we can do that the year ahead of time and um, <laughs> in that fall and being a little more adaptive since quail numbers fluctuate so much and that will also hopefully allow us provide more opportunity to our hunters um, that's part of the end game is to provide mm -hmm. them that resource and that opportunity to get out there on the landscape but at the same time maintaining those quail populations um, to where they can be continued to be hunted for for generations yeah uh, Jess folks that are listening whether they be landowners quail forever chapter volunteers uh, and not just in Georgia, but people listening that want to get involved, want to help. Is there a way for people to get involved if they own land in the southeast or if they're a chapter like, I want to do this in my state? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, any of the biologists are filled in with what's happening with working lands for wildlife um, efforts to to monitor. So putting the ARUs out on the ground. Um, right now, the first wave, we're really focusing on um, those landowners that are enrolled and working with NRCS and EQIP contracts or DSP, you know, even CRP. So um, working that way, 
for now, but um, there's definitely opportunity to expand that as, as uh, James has people to analyze the data, of course. Um, but it, it, like I said, this is a Bob White range wide, um, almost all states that are inv involved in the Working Lands for Wildlife um, framework, those states, it's 25 states, um, in some way will be involved eventually. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of solid states going now, you know, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, there are many others. Um, so we're kind of working this in waves as we get uh, more biologists on the ground and just interest from partners. But the biggest place to, you know, become involved with your local chapter, the habitat chairs are critical in helping um, work with uh, state agencies and with our volunteers to, you know, get those that opportunity out there and to arrange for training. So uh, we pair up with, um, you know, our volunteer chairs and habitat chairs in doing this training. So that's a good place for them to figure out, can you even hear a bird call accurately enough to be involved in training? That's been an important thing. Um, learning how Covey calls, uh, you know, how it all works and you know, how you're gonna write the information down. So we do training ahead of time. And that's another time too, where we can vet the dog handlers as well, you know, um, mm. and you kind of get a feel for mm. who will be, you know, bring the dogs that will be effective in, um, you know, collecting good data. But, um, you know, I guess just reach out to your local biologists, get on our website and go down to the bottom and find, find a biologist and see who's local and if that, first person you know get in contact knows they'll they'll know who to contact yeah quailforever.org find a biologist and if you struggle email me bob s at quailforever.org and i'll be the air traffic controller and get it into the right person's hands um all right let's let's go around the horn with some closing thoughts and pretty you know, let's look into the crystal ball where do we go from here for quail population counting. Um, is James gonna get that helicopter that he's after? <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or is there something more, more, uh, more likely um, as you look into the future? Dallas, let's start with you. Where, where do you see quail population monitoring going in the next, next decade? Uh, definitely more of the automation. Uh, whether it's ARUs or if something else pops up, um, that's going to be a big part of getting out on the landscape. And I'm hoping uh, maybe some more citizen science uh, so that we see people reporting in, you know, we're hearing birds. We've, we've got some things out there now where they can report that they've heard a quail and that's going to help us too. And hopefully that kind of thing will get um, more accurate and more useful as we go through times because there's plenty of people on the landscape to hear birds. Yeah, right on. Uh, James, what do you think? Where, what's uh, what's the next phase of this? I, I agree. Automation, refining the automation. Uh, I, I can see in the near future where the data collected from the acoustic recording devices gets. Uh, now we have to go out and collect the cards from the from the units, and I can see someone's going to figure out a way to affordably remotely download that information, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like similar to what's happened with, uh, trail cameras, uh, but to be able to 
remotely download it, run it through a, a model, and almost give you real-time estimates on a daily, weekly basis. I, I think that's going to be our next step. Um, and, you know, and if we get more electrical engineers and computer science folks involved, that'll happen really fast. Um, that's that's not for the biologists like like me. Uh, that's for the the techies, and, and we need those people too. Uh, so, so I think that's probably the next step is refinement. And then some areas of the country, the use of drones or UAVs may be a tool as well. Although I have my, uh, I have some consternation about using those in, in some cases, but uh, I, I definitely think automation. But, but I will say that there, there will be never be a substitute for a biologist to get out in the field and, and listen for birds. Uh, none of these approaches are meant to be a replacement for good old fashioned folks to go out into the fields and the woods to listen. Uh, mm -hmm. Agreed. I, I tell my students that this, we're not going to turn into, you know, rise of the machines and terminators where everything is, has to be a, a robot or something. Um, we got in this field to experience wildlife and to have other people experience it and counting is no different. So, um, I'm all for pushing the limits of science and artificial intelligence and whatnot, but mm -hmm. get, getting people in connection with birds has got to be a part of it. I, I agree with that. The other thing that you said, though, I think is, you know, if there's a high school or, you know, middle school student thinking about what they want to do for a career, you know, a nugget of, not a chicken nugget, but a nugget yeah. of truth that you said, like, you know, that the engineer biologist, right? Um, or the biologist writer. If, if you're listening to this and getting ready to go to college, if you can find two cross-disciplinary interests, being a really good writer and a biologist, being yep. a techie and a biologist, being a computer science person who loves wildlife, like yep. if you can find two incongruent or at least on the surface, incongruent disciplines, you can be set for life because there's so few people that have yes. those skill sets to marry them together. Like, oh. like you say, an electrical engineer and a wildlife biologist doesn't exist. No, and if there was a, <laughs> if there was a person like that, you could change the face of a discipline. Couldn't you? Yeah. That's a that's a great point. I agree. We we had a, an undergrad student come to UGA a few years ago, and she was a dual major in wildlife and engineering. And and now, guess what? She works for NASA, and mm -hmm. she uh, uses a lot of the stuff she learned in our wildlife classes working for NASA. Um, but I agree 100. My my children, my girls in particular, because they're the oldest, are going to learn to write code, Python code, and, and, uh, and mm -hmm. because. If you're able to do that, if you're able to have a better than basic understanding of computer science and you also understand whatever other profession you're interested in, you're a very remarkable person. And you can, if you're in the wildlife profession, you can impact a lot of things by being, like you're saying, having multiple skills and two different mm -hmm. disciplines is really important. And it doesn't always have to be technology it could no. be creative writing you know knowing sentence structure right public speaking 
you know, just two things that are on the surface incongruent. Yep. If you can bring two disciplines together, my goodness, you can you can really accomplish some amazing things in a career. Yeah, we've we've attempted to be comedians and biologists on this podcast, but <laughs> I don't think we really uh, succeeded. <laughs> well played, well played, uh, Jess. Help me put a ball on this. What's your final thought? Where where are we heading? So you know, I, I agree with James. Uh, you know, automation is definitely where it's at. But I also think you know, empowering the landowner to do their own monitoring and training them to set up a monitoring program on their property is it's a really great tool to have. It builds relationships, and Dallas has done a great job um, getting some of that to happen here in Georgia, and that's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the biologists, they, they want to get out there. They, um, they just want to maximize their time in the field as much as they can. And so, you know, there will be no replacement, but, you know, getting, the, getting chapters involved. And it's encouraging to see, you know, a lot of state agencies at some of these meetings really talking about improving their, uh, you know, the amount that they monitor. They're also contributing a lot of ARUs to this project. So state agencies have contributed to this project as well as chapters buying ARUs as well. So that's been really critical in us being able to have the footprint that we have. And, um, you know, we are working on, on an app. I am really hopeful that um, we will have something to announce at Pheasant Fest this year. We will be having a special quail session at Pheasant Fest. I hope to have some good news on the app then, but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged, but you know, we, we're not going to get anywhere unless we keep building habitat and we keep everybody focused on, uh, on habitat so we can start getting more birds out there to listen to. There you go. There's your, there's your tease for National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Come to Minneapolis this February 17, 18, and 19. Learn about quail, learn about pheasants, sage grouse, prairie chickens. It all comes back to wildlife habitat. Um, thank you all three for, for joining this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Jess McGuire, Dallas Ingram from Georgia DNR, Dr. James Martin of Red Setter fame <laughs> coming all the way from uh from norway thanks for staying up late with us for this episode really appreciate all of your insights and all the effort that you're putting in to uh, uh learn more about bob white quail so we can put more and better habitat on the ground for now and future generations i'm bob st pierre thanking you for listening to this episode of On The Wing Podcast. If you're not yet a member, please check us out at quailforever.org. We got some awesome membership offers going on right now. And hey, it's the holiday season. Buy a gift membership and give the gift of forever. And uh, I'm re I'll remind you, the hunting season's still going, so always follow that dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>